namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami a good stack here. So the next talk in this collection is called Dhamma <coughs> is not an ideal and this was given on the 7th of August 2002 at the Leicester, uh, Society, Leicester Buddhist Summer School. I use this word reflection a lot to imply the ability to observe and witness the way it is. It's not intended to mean analyzing or wondering whether the way it is is the way it should be, or whether one can make it better, or should keep it the same. It's rather a receptivity of the present as an experience, simply because that is all there, is, that is all there ever is. Experience is now. You can imagine the experiences you may have when you go on holiday to Ibiza or somewhere. You can fantasize about future experience, but actual experience is always now. So you can reflect on now. Most people, however, don't do that. Most people operate by either planning or doing something to attain a hoped-for result in the future. Society tends to perpetuate the idea that you work hard while you're young, save your money, and then retire to enjoy yourself when you're old. The sense of now, in that case, can be completely dismissed as unimportant, because the future, especially when you're young, holds the promise of success, wealth, fame, comfort, ease, and all the rest. The future has infinite possibilities and potential, but now can only be the way it is. This is the way it is right now. The same with the past. Past experience is a memory in the present, but you can kind of live in the past, in the golden age or the good old days, or carry resentments from being abused or misunderstood in the past. And if you have had a lot of negative experience in your life, you might see the future as the potential for more pain, more misery and more humiliation. Actually though, all of it is always in the present. Whether you are remembering the past, hoping for success in the future, or dreading the future, it's all happening right now. So this is a reflection on how we perceive time as reality. So his comment about uh, going on holiday to Ibiza, that reminds me of um, a conversation I had a few years ago and a story I've uh, recounted uh, since then often was... um, a woman uh, uh, was telling me how she would go on a holiday to the Mediterranean uh, every year with her, her husband and her children, and, and each year they go to a different place, and they would be uh, always looking for the, the places that are really good for the family and nice places to stay and good beaches and fun things to do and so on. And uh, she said that what happened had happened recently was um, that uh, the year before, the... Um, the place they'd found had the absolute perfect little hotel and it had the perfect beach and it was the, the perfect uh, little town by the seaside and everything was absolutely ideal. And she said, I couldn't enjoy it because the whole time I was trying to, to work out how I could get the hotel to, uh, to accept a booking for us for uh, the following year. And they, they wouldn't take uh, booking, you know, the, their system was not to take bookings uh, that far in advance. So the whole time I was trying to get them to to f- trying to figure out a way to get them to book us for next year so we could enjoy it next year. And I couldn't enjoy it this year at all. And she said, I could see what my mind was doing, and it was crazy. But said, uh, there was this, this, this weird example of, oh, we've got to get it for next year. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to. What, what can I do to, to keep this? And it was so fixed on trying to get this thing and keep it and have it next time that she couldn't enjoy it in the present at all. And uh, so something in her mind was going, this is ridiculous. 
but uh, she couldn't just sort of switch it off as a as an act of will. In Buddhism, there is this emphasis on mindfulness, sati. And the thing that is very obvious in the present is this physical body. Wherever I am, this body goes with me. So it's always here and now. The physical body is an object I can actually refer to. It grounds me in a way, because it is a heavy condition. It has more solidity to it than emotion, thought, or feeling. So it seems much more like me, like mine. But we might not like our bodies very much because they are coarse. Civilization, especially European civilization, has made a desperate attempt to ignore the body and live in an ethereal world of ideas. And when the body behaves itself, we can spend time in refined mental states. When the needs of the body predominate, we have to deal with them. These things are natural, of course, and we are used to them. But still, the ego doesn't want to be identified with the coarser aspects of the physical body, especially in old age, sickness and death. Sickness is a humiliation, isn't it? When we lose control of our bodily functions, it can be humiliating. Particularly if we think of ourselves as being finer than the coarse aspects of the body. Notice how much emphasis modern society places on glamour, fitness and fashion. We would like to be identified with beauty and youth, and wearing fashionable clothes. Covering up the body with beautiful textiles can give us this sense of being attractive and desirable. In the present moment, however, the body is the way it is. We might be sick or in perfect health, young or old, or whatever. It isn't that there is any way the body should be. The point is to see that it is like this. The body, then, is a kind of grounding mechanism for paying attention. Not through vanity, not through comparing oneself with ideal, beautiful examples of men and women, but just through experiencing it in the present. In Buddhist meditation, therefore, we use the four postures, sitting, standing, walking and lying down, as a way of grounding ourselves in the here and now. At this moment, the sitting posture is like this. Oh, this is a a point about the the body that um, I uh, refer to a great deal. uh, uh, Pretty much every meditation uh, retreat that I I lead or event where I'm giving meditation guidance, then this is a, it's a, should be a a no-brainer that if we want to bring our attention into the present then the easiest way of doing that is to focus on the body because the body is always in the present moment it never drifts off into the past or the future or off into other realms that uh, uh, as i often point out you know nobody has got so distracted in the meditation that when they came back to their cushion they weren't there anyone ever found that you're so spaced out in the meditation you're kind of fantasizing about the past or the future or or some kind of imagined realm and you, you think oh actually I, I'm, 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 I'm Ravati it's the winter retreat okay and then you open your eyes and oh my goodness the Amazon rainforest <laughs> what Berlin how could that happen how did I get here I was in Amravati a moment ago but that doesn't happen does it we're always right there on the cushion the body is like the most reliable friend so that the companion that will never ever let you down it's like the most dependable and uh, <coughs> say certain thing in in many respects uh, and it's always uh, here in the present so when uh, you, if you look at the uh, uh, the connected discourses that there's a section of the Sangyutta Nikaya the connected discourses on the unconditioned the Buddha says uh, that all the suttas are fairly similar but the very first one in the series the Buddha says I'll teach you the unconditioned and the way to the unconditioned what is the way leading to the unconditioned mindfulness directed towards the body that is the the, uh, the the way to the uh, uh, realization of the unconditioned. So that, that's sort of number one in that, that collection of teachings, is that if you want to bring your attention to the present, to the reality of this moment, then the body is the, the sort of primary way of, of doing that. And particularly if you have to, uh, happen to live in your head and your mind is always creating ideas about things, then that um, the, the most... Uh, sort of direct and simple way of retraining the mind to to not dwell upon mental creations, thoughts and ideas and uh, moods and imagination, 
is to very consciously develop mindfulness of the body, just to be noticing sitting, standing, walking, lying down, changing from one posture to another, from sitting to standing, sit, standing to sitting, sitting to lying down, so on. Just to notice what the body is doing in, in any one moment. And if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, then it's really that simple. It's just noticing the body walking, the body sitting, the body standing, the body lying down, changing from one posture, posture to another, just to know this is what's happening. This is how it is in this moment. It's, it's this way. There is the body doing this in this, uh, in this moment. So it's really nothing special. The sitting posture is like this, but that's all. It's just uh, keying the attention into the reality of the present. Now we might idealize sitting perfectly. We might see pictures of yogis in the full lotus posture, or impressive meditators sitting in zendos, then try to emulate not only a way of sitting, but also a particular way of standing, walking and lying down. This is one of the problems in monasteries. Monks trying to act like yogis and forcing their bodies into what they think are perfect postures. Sometimes they ruin their backs and knees as a result. It's uh, painfully uh, common. <laughs> Nuns as well. So you have an idea of what you want to be like and how you, and the, the brain uh, is leading the body and then the, usually body, the body says, nope. And you end up with a trip to the osteopath or, or to, to the, uh, uh, the, the knee surgeon. Sitting meditation has become an obsession with Buddhists in the West. We talk about, in the West, we talk about sitting and everyone knows we've sat. How many hours have you sat? I've sat for three hours today. Anyone who didn't know would regard that as a very strange thing to be talking about. <laughs> it's true. Reflecting on this, one recognizes that there is an ideal posture, and it is to be accepted and appreciated. The way it is, however, is like this. If you're causing stress to the body by trying to achieve some ideal, then reflect on what is actually happening. That trying to make your body live up to an ideal is also like this. This is not a criticism, but a recognition. You begin to recognize what's happening, rather than just operating from ideas acquired from teachers or books or whatever. You begin to develop an inner sense of trusting in your own intuitive awareness, realizing that what you're actually doing is adopting some ideal and trying to make yourself fit into it. This is why I emphasize learning to trust intuitive awareness. If we try to force the body into a kind of rigidity, we can see that maybe this is not what is meant. So we begin to recognize what's happening and to see that we're coming from a very willful place. We're thinking of meditation as something we always have to do and gain from and make ourselves and force the body and force the mind. So we recognize the suffering in that. Even though it's a very good so even though it's very good to meditate and be mindful and to practice the various meditation techniques, nothing against any of that. But it is worth asking ourselves whether we are relating to meditation through awareness, satipanya, or through clinging to views and opinions about it. So forcing the body into a particular posture, or having an idea of how we think it should be, and then trying to make the body fit that ideal, it's um, uh, the, uh, the kind of... Uh, in Greek mythology, they had um, what is called the Procrustean bed. There was a uh, this character called Procrustes, who was a, an, uh, he had an, an inn, uh, a hotel, and um, and a very nasty nature, and so that uh, he guaranteed that uh, the this bed that he had in his hotel would fit anybody, anybody who came there. It was this magical bed that would uh, that would fit everybody who came, whether they were tall or short or whatever size they were. But the way that it worked was, if you went to lie down on his magical bed, was if you were short then he would sort of tie your, arm, your, your ankles and your, your wrists and then stretch you out until you, kind of, until you were long enough to fit the bed. And if you were too tall, then he'd chop bits off, chop your feet off so that you're, you're guaranteed that you were the right size for it. But, so that's called a Procrustean bed. I want to remember that. So that, uh, using that, uh, uh, that approach towards meditation, obviously it's, uh, the, the message is that it's very painful and messy and uh, 
and very difficult to walk away from. So that uh, not to have a Procrustean uh, attitude towards to meditation, but rather to work with the body the way it is. And I just was saying to one of the uh, Anagarikas today how uh, when uh, when I first showed up at the Wat Pananachat in Thailand, I was it was very fortunate there was a, a young bhikkhu who was there who had been a yoga teacher before he was a monk. And uh, so he gave very, very good advice about not being too zealous or idealistic in terms of yoga. And there had been a succession of four or five different Western monks in the previous two or three years who'd wrecked their knees and backs and had numerous trips to the, to the doctor and the, having surgery and such like on account of being uh, too idealistic or too zealous or sort of trying to force the body to, to endure uh, uh, excessive amounts of pain or to be forced into the full lotus posture in a, a very willful way. So I was very grateful for the advice I got from this, this monk and, and uh, how to work with the body uh, rather than against it. How you actually uh, bring mindfulness to the body's limitations and work with the limitations, kind of to gently stretch things and, and work with them rather than trying to force them into your idea of how you, how you want them to be. We might give a lot of importance to scriptural teachings, to what teachers say. If someone has a big title like meditation master or roshi or guru, it can increase the sense of that person knows and I don't. The point for us, however, is to be aware. Be aware of that sense, to be aware of how we relate to the teachers that we incline towards. The emphasis then is on trusting intuitive awareness. When I look at the reality of this moment, just here and now, in this room. The body is sitting here at this point, and I can be aware of what's going on in this formation. I can be aware of my feelings and my physical sensations. But what is going on in your mind? I don't know, really. I can guess, maybe, through body language or facial expression. If somebody's looking really desperate, I can kind of wonder. But what you're actually feeling, what you're actually experiencing, I cannot be aware of. I cannot be aware of what you are experiencing as the reality of this moment, as a direct experience. I can, however, be aware of this fact and recognize the limitation that I am under. I learn from this point here, this point of consciousness, rather than from external sources, rather than from thinking somebody else knows me better than I know myself, or that what is written in the scriptures is infallible. There can never be any mistakes or anything wrong with the scriptural teachings. I learned from this point of consciousness rather than from giving power to teachers and gurus who are enlightened and who must know everything and can never make any mistakes, and can never be wrong. Most of us have seen this happen and have, ha and have ourselves, maybe, projected our hopes onto books or traditions or teachers because we don't trust ourselves. We come from this position of I am a confused, screwed-up character and really need to get my act together. I need to meditate more. Maybe I need to be, become a monk or a nun and work on myself so that I become enlightened in the future. And we go on and on like this. Getting behind that basic assumption is what I'm encouraging now. I've seen for many years how Westerners meditate, how many of them never get behind the basic delusion, the premise I am, a, I am screwed up, and I need to practice meditation in order to become enlightened. Sometimes that can lead to, I'm not screwed up anymore, I'm enlightened now, I'm perfect the way I am. But that's equally ridiculous, isn't it? It, it isn't a matter of trying to define ourselves through either negative or positive adjectives, but of recognizing, reflecting on what is actually happening. The I am screwed up, quote-unquote, is something created in the present. It's an assumption we take for granted and never question. We might actually seem screwed up. Maybe we have crazy thoughts or are over-emotional and feel insecure. Maybe we, ha we have neurotic fears and fantasies and desires and then judge ourselves accordingly. I shouldn't feel like this. I shouldn't think like this. I shouldn't be this kind of person. When you reflect on that kind of thing, the conundrum, the koan, would be that which is aware of, I am screwed up, is that screwed up? This is where you have to stop thinking about it and trust in the intuitive sense. 
because now you're learning to take refuge in the intuitive wisdom or awareness rather than in the ideas about, uh, about yourself, about Buddhism, about what you should or shouldn't be, or should or shouldn't do. So lack of self-worth, it seems, is a cultural problem for Westerners. I used to think it was a personal one, but after all these years I see that many people have the problem in one degree or another. So now I think maybe it's cultural. Maybe we are brought up in a culture that basically gives the sense of not being good enough the way we are and need to do better. What we want to blame it on, though, doesn't make much difference. The point is to recognize that which is aware of the lack of self-worth. If we reflect on this, we might begin to notice the sense that we are not very good, worthless in fact and all screwed up, but then allow that feeling to become more consciously accepted. Or we might operate from, well, get on with it, stiff up a lip, make the best of a bad deal, and have all kinds of ways of never really recognizing it as delusion. So we can meditate for years with, the, with, with these delusions, and then through willpower and discipline and so forth, get the illusion that we are getting better. I'm much better than I used to be, and that's through hard work, discipline, sitting for three hours at a time, going on retreats, giving up sensual pleasures, controlling my speech, and on and on like this. But that is all still delusion. I encourage you, therefore, to trust in the awareness, to trust in the awareness of the present, and to carry it through by working at it by really questioning. When you start thinking about yourself, feeling that you're worthless, not good enough, unlovable, stupid, silly or foolish, notice that that is a mental state that you're creating. And then and notice simply that it is like this. But then question, that which is aware, is that foolish or screwed up? Neurotic? Or is the feeling, I'm neurotic, just a feeling that I have in the present? This is inevitably frustrating, because we would like to have an identity. One reason we give our authority to others is because we feel that they are qualified. Psychiatrists, doctors and teachers and so forth are trained and have experience. They know. I'm just somebody who doesn't know. I don't know myself. I feel confused, anguished, depressed. And therefore, somebody else knows what I should do. It's not even that that's wrong. Sometimes psychiatrists, doctors, gurus and people like that really can help us. But if we think it is through somebody else's endeavours that we become enlightened, then of course we're going to end up being very disappointed because that is an impossibility. So just going back to the Lumpur's comment uh, um, a little bit uh, ago where he said, um, recognizing that, yeah, I, I am improving through willpower and discipline. Um, I'm getting better. And that uh, through hard work, sitting for three hours at a time, going on retreats, yeah, things are much better than they used to be. So that might be a, a valid assessment. That it might be that, yes, there's more patience or more, um, say, uh, a kind of a positive attitude. There's a more, say, physical uh, uh, well-being, a, more, uh, a sense of, of uh, ease and able to work with situations. But... What he's saying there is not that those things are bad or wrong in themselves, but rather if the mind is saying, I was that person, I was no good and screwed up, and now I am a lot better. It's still like I am this person who had some problems, and now I've got less problems. So my problems are, are not so awful as they used to be, but it's still put into the context of I am this person who is the genuine owner of these states. So that it's still, so in a sense, taking refuge in, in more wholesome mind states rather than uh, in really unwholesome or confused or, or neurotic mind states. And so that still isn't very liberating. Uh, rather like Freud's comment, you know, the best that my method can do is to, to uh, help you, help to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness. You know, that, uh, uh, that we can do better than that. And then what Lumpur is pointing to here over and over again is that that's kind of stepping out of the picture and saying, well, what is the mind that knows uh, I was really neurotic and now I'm, I'm better. What is it that knows that I am better feeling? Is that, uh, is that, uh, that awareness? Is that a, an owner? Is that, is that a person? Is that me, uh, genuinely me and mine? And so that it's that uh, taking refuge in, in awareness of the different states, whether they're pleasant and, and easy or whether they're difficult and, and uh, screwed up. But it's that 
quality of stepping out of it. As he said, you know, sometimes psychiatrists, doctors, and gurus—they really can help. You know, it's not that they that they they can't, but it's also it's always comes down to the change in this heart, this this mind, it's the change of attitude that is cultivated you know, right here. That's the thing that makes a difference. So that someone external person, like a teacher, or you know, listening to Lumbosomato's words, you know, this can be a catalyst can be a, a means whereby that change is helped along, but the change has to happen in in the, the mind of the individual. So, so that the enlightening is coming from within the heart. It's not sort of a, a, a thing that is sort of delivered from outside. So that's why he says it's an impossibility. And, and the Buddha said the same kind of thing himself you know, uh, repeatedly that the, he couldn't enlighten other people. He couldn't sort of just zap anyone and take away their greed, hatred, hatred and delusion. He could teach with an incredible range of, of skill and power, but he couldn't make anybody enlightened. That was sort of beyond his ability. He said, you know, the Tathagata only points the way. He, can't, uh, he couldn't force somebody to understand. He said, I can point the way, but it's up to the individual to follow that advice or not. And uh, there's a famous story, I think I told a few weeks ago, where the Buddha was traveling through the countryside with an attendant monk. They came to a fork in the road, and, they, and uh, the Buddha said, this is, uh, uh, this is the way to Rajagaha. And his attendant said, no, 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 venerable sir, you know, I, know this, I know this road well. This, the, the right-hand road, this is the way to Rajagaha. And the Buddha said, no, friend, this is the way to go. And so then they, they have this exchange three times over, and eventually the, the attendant monk says, well, I know the way to Rajagaha. I'm going this way, and here's your bowl, venerable sir gives the Buddha his bowl and robe and kind of walks off by himself. And then he gets attacked by bandits, gets beaten up, his bowl gets broken, his robes get torn. Eventually he sort of staggers through the, the countryside, meets up again with the Buddha on the other road. Okay, I understand now why you're taking this road to Rajagaha. He didn't stop to ask the Buddha, why are you, going, why, why are you choosing this path? But uh, it was because the Buddha knew there was going to be some bandits up ahead and that there was going to be trouble. But he didn't stop to think, so he said, yeah, I, I can point the way, but I can't uh, make the, the, the choices for you. So, any uh, questions, reflections before we carry on? You know, at, that, at that point, then, it's the, the, the thing is to sort of be quick on your feet and to say, well, what is it that's aware of this destructive feeling? You know, does this have an owner? Is this, is, this a real, is this the real me? Kind of keep stepping back from it. And whatever is the present, the presently arisen state, then to, to be meeting that with the same attitude. And, uh, and then, oh, wow, that destructive state, that's not really who and what I am. Or what is it that's aware of that? Oh, wow. This isn't what I am feeling. Kind of, you keep staying with that back wall of, of awareness, and that's really the, the, the training is is not to be taking a position, but developing that that kind of uh, ability to to receive and to know the different flows of pleasant, painful, neutral, that, uh, different states of uh, attitude and perception that arise. But you have to be quick on your feet. It's very easy for the mind to get drawn into particular judgments and. Uh, and then take them as being absolutely valid and trustworthy, rather than oh here th this is another judgment. This is just uh, taking a particular form in this way. 
that make sense? Yes. There was a hand coming up. Changed, changed. Okay, very good. Notice that the Buddha's teaching is always about the here and now. Mindfulness is now. Enlightenment is now. Awakenedness is now. The deathless is now. If, on the other hand, you create yourself in, into the now, all the time as a person, sorry, if, on the other hand, you create yourself into the now all the time as a person with qualities and characteristics, never question that, then, of course, you are deluded and endlessly fumbling around with the delusions that you create. If you begin to trust in your awareness, however, you'll see emotional confusion, feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. It isn't a question of denying these things, but you'll no longer identify or attach to them. You will rather recognize that it is like this. If you allow things into your consciousness without comment, without making any problem about them, then you realize it is the way it is. Then see what happens. In this awareness of inadequacy, for example, you're actually letting it go. You're allowing something that arises to cease. You're practicing according to the law of Dhamma. What arises, ceases. Confusion, feelings of inadequacy, the sense of me as a personality, they are not self. So even the sense of being a per- even the sense of self is not self. That feeling of I am, this is me, even though it's it's saying this is me. Even that that feeling itself is not me. It's just another just another feeling. What are you really then? What is your personality? I might assume that I have the same personality all the time. When I am asleep, I imagine tomato. When I am with the monks, I imagine tomato. When I am with relatives, friends, enemies, whoever, I'm the same person experiencing it. If you notice, however, <coughs> the personality adapts to conditions and, and, <coughs> and, habit <coughs> and habit tendencies. It's therefore conditioned and dependent on many factors. It's dependent on whether you're happy, sad, elated, depressed, bored, feeling good about yourself, feeling horrible about yourself, or whatever. In awakening to the present, you recognize that the conditions are like this. If you have to attend a committee meeting in which you know there's going to be a lot of acrimony, in which you know difficult issues are going to be discussed, and you are one of them, you notice that your personality changes. You would not be the same person under the circumstances as you would if you were going to be presented with, say, the Nobel Peace Prize. And when you go home to see your parents, that too is different. My parents died many years ago, but I remember going to see them in America when I was 55 years old. So Lumpur was um, born in 1934, so this would have been about 1989 he's talking about. To them, of course, I wasn't Ajahn Sumato or anything like that but just their little boy. Pretty soon the old ways of relating to each other started up again, and I found it really strange. It really affected me. Trying to notice those kinds of relationships, the assumptions that go on with father-son, mother-son, mother-daughter, and so forth. Just the assumptions and habit tendencies that we have, personally and emotionally. You could say that your parents shouldn't treat you the way they do, that they should accept you as an equal adult. But that, would be, that would be a should of life it wouldn't be an it would be an ideal the way it actually is is it's like this by allowing experiences to be consciously accepted you realize that even if your parents can't change at least you can you can change your attitude not get caught up in an ad, in adolescent resentments that arise when you're 55 years old so i think i was talking about that a, a, a week a few weeks ago this particular time when his sister uh, Virginia had invited him back to to uh, spend time with the, their parents because uh, the mother had been quite ill and um, Virginia was sort of at the end of her tether and so 
Ajahn Sumedha went back for about three weeks to spend with, uh, time with uh, his parents in in San Diego, and uh, his uh, so you know he's uh, uh, a very highly respected uh, senior monk, meditation teacher, and our kind of founder of our monasteries and a highly revered figure. And uh, when his father met him at the front door of their their place in San Diego, he said, Dear, let, let's get one thing straight. You know, I'm in charge in this house. That's like, hi, Dad. Nice to, nice to see you as well. But that was what, literally at the doorstep of the house, his dad is saying, you know, I'm in charge here. And uh, his dad, I think, was about 89 years old then. And... Uh, the, uh, and you know he'd come to be with them to come to help out, but it was really like you know, you, you know you are my son and, and you uh, you f- you follow my rules in this house. I'm in charge here, and so that uh, if we if we want our parents, or we try to force our parents to see us in this idealized way, then we can create uh, you know it, it's often well intentioned, but we can create incredible amounts of suffering. I was told uh, last year about an American monk uh, living in Sri Lanka who. Um, uh, was absolutely when his parents came to visit him, he absolutely demanded that they they just treated him as a, a monk that they were visiting, and they wouldn't relate to them as their as their child at all. And uh, and uh, they had to to bow to him and kind of uh, to you know they weren't Buddhists at all. They were just like their you know their son had gone off to the, to the, the far east and become a Buddhist monk, and they were there as a sort of uh, out of. Um, Friendship and devotion, and being his parents, you know, caring about him. And uh, I remember I, I was hearing this story, and I was just kind of just wincing at the, you know, how someone could be so, you know, it's incredibly clueless in terms of the practice, but how the, the, the parents are really trying to fit in with what he was asking for. But it was uh, extremely painful and difficult. And he was absolutely sure of his own rightness. So, um, the uh, I remember one, the very first piece of advice that I got from from the Lumpur Sumedha when I came back um, from uh, from Thailand, and um, the uh, uh, my father had had a heart attack, so uh, and <coughs> I came back at the end of October of nineteen uh, nineteen seventy nine. It was um, so. F- first of all, I went to stay with the family, um, but then my um, as soon as my father was out of the intensive care, then my mother collapsed. So then she had a, a she needed serious surgery. She was so anxious that her intestine had actually kind of had got so tight that it had formed solid. It kind of it kind of just knotted itself, just tightened itself to the point where it couldn't be un, untightened. So they actually had to open her up and chop out a length of her, of her guts and join the ends up again. So she was in one hospital, and my father was in another hospital with his heart attack. And so um, uh, the um, uh, it was a, a fairly intense time, and there was me coming back from Asia as a twenty-two-year-old, freshly hatched Buddhist monk, um, dealing with life in rural Kent, my my family's community. Anyway, I came to uh, during that time. There was uh, the first um, bhikkhu ordination that they had organised. Lumpur Sumedha wasn't a preceptor at that point, so uh, uh, Dr. Venerable Dr. Sadatisa, who was the the senior monk of the London Buddhist Vihara, he uh, performed the ceremony, and it was on a boat. They well, they had a what they called an udaka sima or a water sima. They didn't have a, a a land boundary, a land sima to do the ordination, so they used a water sima. So it was done on a boat in the River Thames, and it was sort of October twenty seventh, I think it was, and then the next day. After the bhikkhu ordination, which was Venerable Kandanya, Kandanyo and uh, Tanavaro, um, they were two novices becoming bhikkhus. And then the next day was when the first four nuns, Ajahn Sundra, Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Chandasiri, uh, and then Sister Rochana and Sister Tunisra, the four of them took the eight precepts the next day to Chidhurst. That was my first visit to Chidhurst. I went down there, and it was the first time I had uh, uh, met uh, uh, Ajahn Sumato. And um, so <coughs> it, was, <coughs> it was a very you know, interesting, wonderful meeting. And I said, um, yeah, have you got any, any advice for me to be with my family? And he said, don't be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. It was like, 
you, you figure out the details, but you know, don't be difficult. Okay, well, you know, my mum's, yeah, I'll try and be as, you know, it's already a pretty traumatic time, so I'll try and be as undemanding. <laughs> not getting my sisters to bow to me every morning. <laughs> Which would not have gone down very well. Actually, when my mother met me at the airport, the, the, the very first thing that she said to me was, if you think, because the film, The Buddha Comes to Sussex, just by chance had been on the TV the week before. So they'd seen all these, um, you know, the, the, the uh, opening of Chithas Monastery and then people uh, uh, kneeling down to offer food to Lumpur uh, Cha and to the, to the other Sangha members. And so the, the first thing my mother said to me was, if you think I'm going to get down on my hands and knees to give you your, to give you your lunch, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> So, hello, Mum. Nice to see you, too. <laughs> but uh, my mother has a, quite a strong will, so I knew I was not going to argue with her. But it was, um, you know, if you, uh, again, if you come at these things with, a, with an idealistic attitude, then you just end up making suffering, suffering in the middle, suffering in the beginning, suffering in the middle, and suffering in the end. So uh, adaptability is the, the key to happiness in this respect. <laughs> To think I am screwed up is a value judgment, isn't it? Screwed up makes the I am. It is identifying with a certain kind of condition, a feeling about oneself personally. If we leave off the screwed up bit, we get more to the reality of the moment. Right now, I am. There is this sense of being here and now. This is a recognition of conscious experience as an entity. There is an entity, but it's not a personal, but it's not personal anymore. It's not I am Ajahn Sumedha or I am anything at all. It's just this sense of I am, of presence. Being a conscious entity is like this. Reflect on that and sustain it for a while. That sense of I am without adding any personal conditions to it. In the sense of, I am the body, it's like this. There's consciousness, there's the breath. One can be aware of just the breathing of the body, anapanasati. There is the sound of silence, the ostinato, the background. So I had to look that one up myself. Ostinato is Italian. It's a musical term, meaning the, and it comes, it's like the English word obstinate. It's the con- consistent uh, musical tone that, that uh, carries on while other things are, uh, are making a tune and such like the ostinato, is the, the, the continuing um, background sound or rhythm or what the, uh, uh, say the, the strings are doing or the, the, the woodwind are doing. The ostinato, the sound of silence, the background. And in this intuitive moment, one observes without adding any kind of personal quality. The breathing does not convey a high sense of personal attainment, achievement, or identity. When you reflect on the body as experience right now, it's not like looking into a mirror and deciding whether there are a few more lines on your face or whether your nose is too big. The appearance isn't important. You're aware of just the experience of a physical body that is a conscious being and holding that. You're able to reflect on the reality of it. And as you do so, you may become more aware of the tensions in your body, the way your shoulders are, your spine, pressure of the body sitting on a mat, or sensations of itching that come along. And you realize they are like this. In terms of basic meditation, the awareness of your posture and breath, maybe the sound of silence, are ways of bringing you into the present moment where you're not trying to get anything not trying to achieve or attain anything, not operating from some idea of, if I do this practice, I'll get enlightened in the future. You are rather learning to center yourself, to open to the present through these very grounding experiences before they get into highly personal conditions, like emotions. If you ground yourself in this way, then emotional states will come up. Lack of self-worth, doubt, despair, anger, greed, and all the rest. But you'll recognize that body, feelings, mind, and mind objects, in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, they simply arise and cease. 
Try to have a permanent emotion. Depression seems permanent while you're in it. And the biggest fear is that you'll never get out of it again. I'm in hell forever, an eternal hell. That is the way it seems. But as you relate to feelings of depression or worthlessness, despair or negative states of mind in this other way, you'll recognize that they are the way they are. And you'll allow them to become conscious by no longer resisting these things, by no longer trying to analyze them, criticize them, or distract yourself from them. You begin to recognize impermanence and to allow any condition to be what it is. Now you cannot do that if you're taking it personally. Just speaking for myself, my personality is based on the idea that I shouldn't be depressed. A healthy man is not depressed. I should be a good monk. I should be the ideal. I should be full of compassion and loving kindness. I shouldn't feel mean or resentful. The personality is always coming out with that kind of thing. The superego loves to tell you what you should or shouldn't be. We have these monastic reflections about loving all sentient beings and being totally selfless. They're about respecting the offerings given by others because we are arms mendicants and reflect on the position of the ideal monk. But Western monks and nuns, I've noticed, get into feeling guilty from these monastic reflections. One reflection is, I am dependent on the gifts of others. Am I worthy of these offerings? The Western personality will say, I don't think I'm worthy. I think it works for Easterners as well. (laughs) I don't think I'm worthy. The truth is, they may, they may not, sorry, the truth is, they might not really like what somebody is offering them and then feel guilty about it. I should be grateful for these generous offerings. But actually, they don't like them at all and then feel unworthy. That's the personality, that's the personality isn't it? Monastic or religious conventions often come from the ideal position, which is fair enough. Not to say that there is anything wrong with that, but how do we relate to this idealism? On a personal level, we can feel intimidated by it, and that can make us feel even more worthless than we did before, because we should be compassionate, and yet right now, we're not feeling anything near that. But reflection is non-judgmental. So if I'm feeling petty and mean, and relate to that through awareness, then it is seen to be like this. Feeling ungrateful, resentful, mean and nasty is like this. It's a question of just allowing it to be the way it is, without taking it personally anymore. This is putting it into the context of the way it is, rather than seeing it as some more personal flaw, some personal defect. So this uh, way that we have of relating to habits, emotional habits like saying, uh, I'm depressed, or uh, I'm always angry, or I'm I'm, uh, I'm always afraid, uh, I'm a a worrier, I'm always worried, so forth, or I'm filled with lust, I'm always greedy, I always want, 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 I never stop wanting, that um, these are stories that we tell ourselves, and there might be a grain of truth, a a sense of... uh, uh, it's a, a habit that arises repeatedly or something that is very familiar. But it can also be that we are not noticing that it's something that's coming and going. And, uh, and so that this is uh, uh, this way of looking at emotional states or, or strong emotional habits and, and challenging the way that the mind holds them. It says, you know, I've got an anger problem. Or I've got, I'm, a, I'm depressive. I'm always depressed. You know? That... Uh, to be able to step back from that and watch what actually happens and see, well, it's not there all the time. And not just through wishful thinking or, or just kind of pushing it aside in, uh, in, uh, and suppressing, but recognizing, oh, that's right, when I'm, in, uh, when I'm in the middle of eating my meal, I forget to be depressed. If I'm you know, brushing my teeth, what happened to my fear problem? I'm just brushing my teeth. And they recognize, oh, look, it, it does actually come and go. And so that um, one of the methods that Ajahn Chah used to encourage, which is very revealing, if he said, if you think, I, I've got an anger problem, I'm an angry person, I'm always angry. Said, okay, so you want to, to, to explore that. Say, okay, make a determination when you sit down to meditate. Say, okay, I'm going I'm to arouse the state of anger. I'm going to stay angry for an hour. So forget about your breath. You know, leave Anapanasati. This is anger meditation. <laughs> 
So you say, okay, I'm going to create an angry feeling and I'm going to stay angry for an hour. And it says, and if you stop feeling angry, then, then you have to let go of the, the distraction, come back to being angry again. <laughs> and and uh, just keep rousing that feeling of anger. And if you, if you get tired or it stops, don't let it. Go back. <laughs> Recreate it. Get angry again and again and again. And uh, so he was, he was speaking in that way a few times. And I thought, okay, well, let's just try it. And it's incredibly hard. It's much harder than Anapanasati if you really try it. And, uh, you know, you can do it with other emotions. That, uh, it's, uh, it's really tough. It's hard work to stay in the emotionally uh, kind of negative state. It really takes quite a bit of work. And when I, when I did it with, with anger, by the time I got to the end of the hour, it was like, <sighs> I was just exhausted. And there was absolutely no way the mind was going to get to any kind of negativity. It just couldn't do it because it was completely burned by the effort of trying to sustain an angry feeling for, for an hour. See. <coughs> any particular questions, thoughts at that point? Yes. Well, it's um, the um, someone was asking me about this the other day, a couple of yesterday. That you can't um, control how other people see you. That's not within your your um, say within your your ambit, your 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 power. Um, so that uh, y- uh, the most challenging thing is to not react against that. Say, I'm not that way. I'm not that way. Let me explain. But, 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 and because uh, the more that you want to sort of jump in and, and uh, explain how they've got it wrong, and how you really are, then you, uh, that, very, um, that very effort, the way that the mind is coming from that sort of fearful, intimidated place, it compounds that. As a, there's a, um, uh, I'm not sure if it's accurate, but I was, was told it's a, a quotation from Confucius, which is, uh, those who justify themselves those who justify themselves do not convince. So the very the very energy behind that, but 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 but, but let me explain, is um, uh, is it creates more sort of division, more uh, more alienation. So the the thing to do is when when uh, you receive some kind of um, perception uh, of uh, how you are how you are seen or how people relate to you, to to take that in and say, okay, well that seems to be. How this person is seeing me? Yeah. Um, is there any truth in that? Is there any grain in that? Is, is it do I do I reject it just because it doesn't agree with my preferred version of myself? Is it uh, what is it? How is it? So yeah, there's an exploring, like an investigation, and um, but I found for, for myself I was very very heavily conditioned by wanting to be seen in a particular way, and was sort of trying to create a certain image and wanting to be seen in a, in a certain manner. And respected in that way, and uh, and I didn't realize the amount of, of kind of energy I was burning, trying to wanting to be to be seen or to be regarded in a particular fashion. And so then, what I found was um, that uh, when I realized this is a lot of work, <laughs> and uh, not uh, and also um, created more alienation. What I, I found was that I uh, I began to trust more and more a quality of being aware of my own intentions. And say, just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. So I used that as a kind of mantra because I was, I saw I was so driven by wanting to be seen in a certain way and then trying to sustain a particular kind of image or, or how I wanted to be seen as sort of a good monk who was always helpful and is, can do this and that and is this way or that way. And so when I just stopped trying to... Sort of project that image, and let myself sort of, in a sense, more respond moment by moment to different situations. And I literally that that was the phrase I used over and over and over. Just do what you do, and let the world make of it what it will. Not to be kind of bloody minded, 
but they are, and that's to kind of turn into a sociopath, but uh, but rather not to be driven by my idea of what they think about me. You know, you're kind of like one of those R.D. Lang knots setups. <laughs> but just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. And I've often mentioned that during that time, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was here at Amravati, the first time I went, um, that when I was sort of letting go of this idea of trying to be the perfect monk all the time and always sort of be doing everything, uh, you know, 110%, um, then one of the other bhikkhus that was here made this really helpful comment, which was, you're much easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. So, as I said, you know, uh, I didn't know whether to be insulted or complimented. <laughs> Is that a nice thing to say? Or what does he mean? But it was, a, it was actually a very helpful comment to make. That, uh, that it was a... Um, because there's this, you're trying to to be seen or to be understood or to be looked at in a certain way and you're kind of carrying this persona around and sort of asking people to agree with it and uh, and that that was just making more and more of a, a division and uh, the um, and not also not really recognizing that you can't control how people see you and what you think is being helpful and inspiring Somebody else is finding really irritating or, or depressing. Like in, in those, um, I remember in that same era because I got a, a kind of a. Uh, I came from a poor family, but I got a kind of posh accent. It's not quite as pronounced as it used to be. I used to sound like Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bit of an American twang now, but uh, I used to sound. I mean, we've seen that. If you've seen that, blue eyes and saffron robes. I've got this very English public school accent and so and so that uh, I thought I was being this sort of you know very good kind helpful monk and there was a, a, a number of the, the monks who are from working class backgrounds that were here that just had a lot of anger towards me just because of my voice like you know he's officer class you know we're 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 we, you know, we're the lot bred for cannon fodder <laughs> we're and this is the voice of that lot and so just the the you know the sound of my voice was really you know off putting and, and intimidating really annoying to other people and I and when one of the, the the monks told me that I thought oh really he said well yeah I've been carrying it around for a couple of years so I thought I ought to let you know <laughs> but it was uh, it was helpful to know that so that just that that way I was being seen just because of you know this voice says privilege. Whereas, you know, I mean, my parents were really broke. I mean, I had a, when I went, when I went to university, I had a, my father's income was 900 pounds a year. That was his, that was the, so we got a, a full grant from the county because my parents were so broke. I mean, we were really scra scraping by. But I, but because we got scholarships to, to schools and we ended up with these posh accents, so we're the kind of privileged paupers. <laughs> So uh, that um, that uh, projection that I received from other people, I can't say, don't see me that way. Because the signal they were getting, just the sound of the voice, like, one of them. And that you, uh, you find that if you don't let that be what dominates your perceptions, but rather, okay, well, it's not up to me how other people see me. I'll just do my best to act in a, in a skillful way to keep the precepts to be coming from a, a good intention, but it's out of my hands as to how I am seen. That's a, and then that just relaxing within oneself, as I said, not just sort of switching off and say, well, it's, that's your business, I don't care about what you think. That's just more aversion, but rather just that a kind of inner relaxation, just, just do what you do, come from as good a place as you can, and then some people will love it, some people will hate it, and most people won't even notice. <sighs> and then uh, that uh, enables you to harmonize, to attune to the situation much more, kind of completely. So on that note, I think it's now 7 o'clock, so that's the last reading for the, this period. I'll leave it there for the time being. And... Um, so we have the change of schedule from uh, 
tomorrow. We have an open schedule, and uh, there'll be um, gatherings on the observance days. But otherwise, this, the temple is open. You know, people are welcome to make uh, free use of it. Um, I will be having my own solo retreat, so hopefully nobody will see me till March the first. Disappear into my kuti, but uh, uh, so we'll uh, go into a different mode for the next three weeks. <coughs> Sa